Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 10, we read this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Father, we pray that this morning you would help us understand this challenging text in a way that would bring glory for you and the Savior Jesus Christ through your spirit in a way that would change us to be more grateful for the measure of Christ's gift. God, help us to understand your word so that we can live it out in our lives day by day. As we desire to walk by the spirit and not walk by the flesh. As we desire to implement the spiritual gifts you bestowed on each one of us to complement one another. As we look to Christ, the head of the church, and as we bow before him and worship him this day. For he is worthy of our praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Canadian Christian band called Down Here released an album in 2009 entitled How Many Kings Songs for Christmas. The song How Many Kings featured on that album has made a mark on my life, not just because of the words of that song, but because of the words of the Bible, which teach very clearly exactly what that song is all about. And the song talks about how How many kings would step down from their throne in order to serve you and to save you and to bring you into their kingdom? Listen to the lyrics of the song. It goes like this. Following the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe after all we've projected a child in a manger, lowly and small, the weakest of all, unlikeliest hero, Wrapped in his mother's shawl. Just a child. Is this who we waited for? Cause. And then it goes into the chorus. How many kings. Step down from their thrones. How many lords. Have abandoned. Their homes. How many greats. Have become the least. For me. How many gods. Have poured out their hearts. To romance a world that is torn all apart. How many fathers gave up their sons for me? That's a powerful message because I don't know about you. I've got three sons and I wouldn't give up one of them for any one of you. But God the father gave up his son, his one and only son to save us we were part of that world that was all torn apart that he romanced and that while we were yet sinners christ died for us to bring us into his kingdom and the song really captures what many of us miss in the christian life we just get so busy doing and doing and serving and serving and 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 going through the disciplines which are good and which are right But we forget the purpose sometimes in it all. And we forget the motivation that it's because of God's great love for us that he bankrupted heaven itself when he sent his son who descended to the earth to die on a cross for you and for me. 
It ought to blow our minds. This scandalous story of the love of God. That he would sacrifice at such great length. Because of his great love for his own glory and the glory of redemption, which includes each one of you if you're in Christ. It's powerful words because the scripture is powerful in telling this gospel story. We should never get over and never be able to move beyond that one central thought of God's great love for us. In fact, that's part of what Paul's been writing about in Ephesians as we looked at that prayer at the end of chapter 3 that we may have the strength to comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This morning, let us be reminded that God set us free not only from the penalty of sin, which is death, but from the power of sin, which is slavery, so that you might walk in freedom with a new, brand new life, knowing where you're headed because you're his. You've been bought with a price and you're not your own and your eternal trajectory has been determined by God. This morning, let us be reminded that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is not only our advocate, but he is our atoning sacrifice. Not only does he plead our case before God, but he makes the case when he gives his own life as a ransom for many that we may be saved. This morning, let us be reminded that while we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. And this morning, let us not forget that Jesus has come to dwell in your heart through faith. He's come to make a holy habitation in your heart and in your life in a way that would change you forever. He's come to root us and to ground us in love. And in your life this day, he can do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all you could ever ask or think This is the God that we pray to. This is the God that we love. And then we moved right into chapter 4 where he begins to talk about, Therefore, in light of these things, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he began to talk about in verses 1 and 2 what that looks like. Remember, really, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 is all one unit of walking in unity. And so as he begins to describe walking in unity, he tells us what it's got to look like. It's got to look like somebody walking in humility, verse 2, and walking in gentleness and walking with patience that we would forbear with one another in love, that we would be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is what it looks like to walk in unity. And the reason that we've been challenged to walk in this way is because we serve just one, one Lord. We have one faith and one baptism and one God and Father over all. And we talked about these seven ones, how they all point to the centrality and the unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This moves us into our text this morning where we want to take a look at the measure of Christ's gift. And so I've moved this passage of verses 7 through 10 into three headings. The first is the title of our sermon this morning, The Measure of Christ's Gift. And if you look at verse 7 there, we're going to fill in our first little sub-point here. It is this, grace was given to each one of us. 
So you see it there in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And what he's doing in verse 7 is he introduces that verse with a contrasting conjunction. The idea is he's been talking about unity and unity and walking in unity because God is unified and God is one. But in verse 7, he starts off with a but. But he wants to make a contrast and say, hey, while that's true, don't forget this. The grace of God was given to each one of you. And he goes from the big picture of unity to the individual picture of individuals. And at the end of verse 7, he begins to talk about you receive that gift according to Christ's measure. He's, he's, he's telling us that unity is not uniformity, but rather unity is a united diversity. Don't ever think that unity is uniformity, that we're all to be the exact same. That's just not true. We're all different. We're, we've been called to be exactly who you are. While we're different, we all have been saved in exactly the same way. We've been saved by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of this one God that we worship and bow down to, but he's given to each one of us special gifts. He's given to each one of us the measure of Christ's gift just as he determines. We know that we can't all be exactly the same just when we look at a house. A house is built out of a bunch of boards. They all have different dimensions. You have two by fours, two by sixes, two by eights. Four by fours, some boards are six feet long, 10 feet long, 12 feet long, 16 feet long. You have concrete and rebar. You have all kind of uh, different uh, bricks or, or cement blocks. You, you have stucco, you have piping, uh, duct work, electrical work, drywall, paint, molding. You get the point. One house with many parts and all the parts are not the same but they all serve the same purpose to support the look and the feel and the function of that singular dwelling, your home. That's what the church is supposed to look like, that we're all different, but we're all in the same God with the same calling. It's what marriage looks like. When you're married to somebody, you know the Bible teaches that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, praise God for that. But while Lisa and I are one flesh, trust me, we have our differences. And sometimes it's really different. For example, she likes romantic comedies and chick flicks. I like action films and war movies. She likes to go to the tea house. I like to go to the steakhouse. She likes the color pink. I like the color blue. She likes to sleep under the covers because she's always cold. I always throw all the covers off because I'm hot. She is an incredible multitasker. I mean, she can watch all five kids plus do the laundry while she's dusting the shades and preparing dinner. All at the same time. I just kind of sit there in front of the World Cup trying to figure out soccer. You know, that's about all I can do at one time. She could do amazing things. And I'm so grateful that we have differences. I'm so grateful that we are diverse in some ways, yet we are united. And so the idea of unity in the Bible never means uniformity. 
Like we're all exactly the same, but it means a united diversity. And so each one of us has certain preferences and certain desires and a unique giftedness, but together we're better. And that's part of the joy of marriage is I just admire so much the differences and the strengths of my wife that I don't have. And in the same way, I admire in this church the strengths of people who can do things I just can't do. And it's just amazing to see. And so unity, again, is not about uniformity, but a united diversity. We complement one another and we complete each other as Christ's body in the church just the way God designed it to be. And so what he's saying again in verse 7 is, while there's a lot of unity, there's still some diversity because to each one of you is given this gift according to the measure of Christ's work. And so we're the same, but we're different. Each one of us are like a, a fingerprint or a snowflake. But when you put all the snow together, it's beautiful white blanket that looks uniform. Lloyd-Jones says it this way, quote, The diversity does not break the unity, and the unity does not do away with the diversity. This is the special glory of redeeming grace. This is the miracle of redemption. That's what he's been talking about, of redeeming Jews and redeeming Gentiles, that the two became one. Only the gospel can do that. In any institution, in any enterprise. And so not only was grace given to each one individually, but we see that verse 7 also teaches that gifts were given according to Christ's determination. According to Christ's determination. You see there again in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so the first gift that God gave us was the gift of salvation. And Paul's discussed that clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so first, Christ gives us the gift of salvation. But this text begins to move us on into sanctification. So remember, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about the indicative statements of fact about what Christ has done and your high position in Christ, while chapters 4 through 6 tend to emphasize the imperative and who you must be part of your sanctification. And so in this context, it's actually the, the, the measure of Christ's gift is starting to move us into the realm of spiritual gifts. In fact, connected to this passage in verse 11 is that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And so he begins to move on talking about this. Each one of us has this special gift. It's salvation, but it's also packed with spiritual gifts to help us in our sanctification. And we all have different gifts that we're to work together. The word gift here in verse 7 does not necessarily focus on the undeservedness of the gift or the spiritual nature of the gift so much as it focuses on the freeness of the gift. In fact, the word gift was used to express freeness by our Lord in Matthew chapter 10 when he uses the same word. He says, heal the sick. He's writing to the 12 or talking to the 12 rather. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay or the nasb says freely you received freely give and so he's just simply saying that jesus is giving these gifts out of his own sovereign choice freely he's able to do whatever he wants to do to whoever he wants to do it and what, what he's saying here is that your gifts are not measured by your ability or by your heritage, or by your physical capabilities, or or natural giftedness, if you will. That's different than these spiritual gifts. 
which God is free in Christ to give to the measure of his own choice. And so your gifts are not about your ability, but they're more about Christ's sovereignty. Did you know that God gave the power to the son to choose whomever he would save, even as is emphasized in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my father, Jesus said, and no one knows who the son is except the father and who the father is except the son and anyone whom the son chooses to reveal him. So just as Jesus has sovereign ability to select for his own those that would be children of God, so does the Son have the sovereign authority to give the measure of gift to each person just as he chooses. Just as God gave you a specific shape physically and a specific build and a particular hair color and a particular eye color and a specific height You also have been given specific spiritual gifts that fit just you, and they're determined by Christ. Now, you may say, well, Adam, I thought the Holy Spirit gave us the gifts. Well, he he did. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're asking the question, well, who, who determines the gifts? Is it Jesus, as Ephesians 4, 7 says, or is it the Holy Spirit, as is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Start reading in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one spirit to another, the working of miracles to another prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between gifts or between spirits to another various kinds of tongues to another, the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So which one is it? Does Christ give or does the spirit give? Well, notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we just read here, verses 4 through 6 emphasize what? Verse 4 talks about, now these are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Verse 5 says varieties of gifts, but the same Lord. Verse 6 says varieties of activities, but the same God. So the idea is it's given by the Trinity. It would be wrong to say it's only one Without the knowledge of the other, they all have a part to play. They're all involved in some degree. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God the Holy Spirit is emphasized as the one who gives these gifts. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul chooses to use Christ as the one who is emphasized and who has the ability and the authority to give the measure of gifts just as he chose. And just as we receive those physical gifts from God that make up our physical and human body, you also receive those spiritual gifts from God that make you look just like you look. And so we can't complain about how we look spiritually. You might be tempted to say, yeah, but I don't have one of those more pronounced gifts such as prophecy or teaching or whatever. I'm just kind of the encourager. Well, thank God that you're an encourager. So stop complaining and start encouraging somebody. Right? I mean, the idea is that we all have to work together beautifully in order to accomplish what God wants us to. You can't, just as you've been given your body, you've you got to be a good steward of your body. You need to eat healthily. 
you know, not, not, not too many uh, nachos and not too many uh, hot dogs and hamburgers at the Dodger game like I did the other night. But, you know, you've got to eat healthy. You also need to exercise a little bit. You're trying to stay in good shape. Well, spiritually, it's the same way. You've got what you got, but you can increase what you have by exercising spiritually your mind and your heart in God's word so that you can be the best part of the body that you can be because we all need each other. And so what he's saying here is that Christ gives up to that measure that Christ as the head of the church is the giver and dispenser of all the gifts. And this, this then leads Paul not only to ascribe all the glory to the Lord, but also to show us how the Lord Jesus ever came into the position to be able to do this. I mean, the question is, why is Christ the head of the church? Why is he the giver of all the gifts? How did Jesus arrive at this particular position where, he's a, where he has full authority to do this? Well, the answer to those questions are in the next three verses. So that moves us on to our second heading this morning, number two, the manner of Christ's victory. Part of what he's going to be saying in verse 8 is, I'll tell you why Christ can do it. Because he won. He's the victor. In verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So Christ ascended on high. And the first thing that Paul tries to accomplish here is to tell us that the idea of Christ giving gifts to Christians is nothing new. In fact, it was foretold in the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 68. You see how he's introducing here in Ephesians 4, 8, when he says, therefore it says, he's introducing a quotation of scripture, or at least he's introducing that he's alluding to pulling this information from some Old Testament text. In fact, if you look there in the margin of your Bible, you can clearly see that this comes, it looks like, from Psalm 68, and many would say maybe from verse 18. And so why don't you turn to Psalm 68 and let's see exactly what's going on here in the Old Testament because you need to understand Psalm 68 in order to understand Ephesians 4, 8. So in Psalm 68, this is a psalm written by David, most likely to celebrate the fact that he had conquered a Jebusite city. So the Jebusites, which are like the Philistines or the Amorites or the Amalekites, they were a pagan group who lived in Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. So David cleaned out the Jebusites, and then he writes this psalm that, 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 that describes the glory of God and the victory that God had in conquering the city. Really, the psalm, 68, it chronicles the victories and the travels of God's people from Mount Sinai all the way to Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, located in the wilderness, is where God gave his holy law to his mediator, Moses. But Mount Zion, located in the holy city of Jerusalem, is where God would come and give his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish the fulfillment of the law. Listen to Psalm 68. You're there already. Verses 17 and 18. The chariots of God are twice 10,000. So what he's kind of saying, even in that phrase, is it was no contest for God. The chariots of God, the might of God, can never be really fought against with any kind of significant battle because the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So he's probably alluding to the fact that what God delivered at Mount Sinai in the wilderness is now 
trans, been transported through the wilderness, been transported all the way into Israel, and finally is transported into Jerusalem as David brought the Ark of the Covenant into its final resting place there at the temple. And he, so he's saying, hey, Sinai is now here in the sanctuary that was built there in Jerusalem. And in verse 18, you ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And so these two verses of Psalm 68 summarize, again, the military victories that God gave to his people when he led them from Sinai to Jerusalem. The gifts that God received among men are the booty of war and the tribute that conquered peoples pay to him. These victories are God's victories over his enemies and for his people. So here in verse 18 is this triumphant conclusion of his march with his people from Egypt to Sinai to Jerusalem. And so as Paul quotes from Psalm 68, he obviously has Jesus in mind. Jesus is the one who ascended because guess what? Jesus is the conqueror who in the same way came in to your territory and set you free and brought you home to the place that he wanted to place you. And he is the one, Jesus is the one who conquered his foes. Jesus did this by ascending to the top of Mount Calvary where he suffered and where he bled and where he died and where he was raised again so that you and I might have newness of life. This is what we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 And following, when Paul writes, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortals put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the idea is that Christ is the victor. Christ is the one who has ascended. And so we read that the power of death is God's holy law. But now we see that the power of grace is in God's holy lamb, Jesus Christ. He is the one who accomplished redemption, not God's law, but God's love through his lamb, Jesus Christ. And so Sinai represents God's holy character as given through the law of God while the sanctuary represents God's holy presence accomplished in your heart through faith because of what Christ has done when he defeated the consequence of the law, which is death and eternal punishment by extending mercy and lavishing on us grace upon grace. And part of that grace is spiritual gifts that he gives to you to use for the Father's glory. And so after Christ's resurrection, he did remain on earth For 40 days and then he ascended up into heaven. So this is part of what he's talking about. He ascended on high. Not only did he ascend in the sense of he conquered the grave, but he ascended in the sense of he actually went back into heaven. But before he did, he said, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit will come upon you i.e. spiritual gifts are coming through the spirit and you'll be able to be a better witness in Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. And so the idea here is that Psalm 68 teaches it is a precursor. It is giving us a hint that one would come who would fulfill this, who would not necessarily be God the Father so much as God the Son, 
The Old Testament uses Psalm 68 to refer to the Father. The New Testament uses Psalm 68 through the inspired ability of Paul to talk about the Son. Well, not only do we see that Jesus is the victor because he ascended upon high, but we also, secondly, we see that Christ led captive a host of captives. Now, there in verse 8, again, we have another thing to wrestle with just a little bit. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's how the ESV says it. The NASB says he led captive a host of captives. I believe the NASB is a little better translation here because the word for captives in the Greek is not used once, but it's used twice. So in the original language, the first time the word captive used, it's used as a verb, he led captive. So the NASB, I think, does the best job saying he led captive. The ESV just says he led. And in, in the original language, it could be he, he led captive. He led into captivity is what it's saying there. So he led into captivity or he led captive. And then the next time it's used, it's a noun. He led captive a host of captives. So what's going on here? What, what in the world does this mean? I don't, I'm, I'm getting all confused. What do you mean he led captive a host of captives? Well, this is a picture of what it looked like to conquer an enemy in ancient times. The picture would be that the general returning from, from war to his homeland would display trophies of war. And it included in that victory train would be significant items of great value, such as gold and silver and precious stones or tunics or cattle, anything of value of that day. And so the picture here is clearly seen that Christ is the victor. And the parallel passage of Ephesians is that book of Colossians that we go back and forth some through in our study, which says this, Colossians two fourteen and 15, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, but put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So notice this picture of Christ being the victor is clearly seen here in Ephesians. It's seen in Colossians. We understand that not only would the victor disarm the enemy and put to open shame this enemy, but he would also, during the victory march, he would show that if there were any of the general's own soldiers whom the enemy had previously captured, the victorious general would bring them back and parade them before the crowds. These were often referred to as recaptured captives. Recaptured captives, prisoners who had been taken prisoner again by their own king and then given freedom. Well, my friends, this is a picture of you and of me. This morning, you see, Christ rescued us from our former captivity, and he's returning us to that position that Adam had in the garden through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, by redeeming us. And so the big picture is man used to be with God, man sinned, and God comes back and pulls man back. He recaptures the captive because for a long time, you and I were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And at that point, we were held in the captivity, if you will, of Satan to some degree. You say, well, Adam, that sounds a little strong. I know I'm a sinner, but was I really captive to Satan? Well, we looked at that in Ephesians 2, where we read about how you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the sons of disobedience, among them whom you once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
That's where you and I were. We were children of wrath, deserving the full punishment of God. We were captive to our own sin and following our father, the devil. But God made us alive together with Christ. And God has now captured us and brought us into his captivity, which, my friends, is a good captivity. It's the kind of captivity you want to be in because the truth is this. You're going to be a slave to something. You're either going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to your Savior, Jesus Christ, which is what Romans 6 is all about. Why don't you turn there with me? Romans chapter 6 describes this whole spiritual picture of being a slave, using slave terminology throughout. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So there's the picture. You were, I was, enslaved to sin. We were a slave to our own sin. And yet, if you skip down in Romans 6, verse 20 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness... In other words, you were a slave to sin. You didn't care about righteousness. Um, The fruit that you were getting, verse 21, at the same time, at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed. In other words, when you were a slave to sin, you didn't do anything righteous. You were only sinning all the time. And what do you have to show for it? You didn't have any lasting fruit from your sin. Sure, it was fun for a season. But the end of verse 21 says, for the end of those things is death. So what he's saying is if you're living in the world right now and you don't know Christ and you're sleeping around, Are you getting drunk? Are you living for pleasure only? Then you're living and you're enslaved to sin and your end is death. But God in his great love says, I want to make you a slave to something better. He says this in verse 21 uh, or verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, you see, when you repent, When you trust Christ, when you become born again, it's a sovereign work of God through the spirit of God to regenerate you and to redeem you. That when you have been set free from sin, you've now become a slave of God. The fruit that you now bear, this fruit leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. It's almost like you saying, hey, pick one. You'll be a slave to sin. And oh, by the way, you will die and go to hell. Or you can be a slave to God. And have eternal life and bear fruit that every day you can walk in the grace of God. Every day you can see the benefit of being a Christian. That while Satan tries to deceive us thinking somehow it's a burden to walk with Christ. Because we have to deny ourselves. The fact is that that's a lie from Satan. Deceiving us. Making us think that we're more free if we just pursue our sin. Well, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said... People think that a life of sin is a life of freedom, but it is the greatest slavery of all. That's what sin is. It's a slave. Satan is a slave master, but God is a good master and he captivates the hearts of his children and he pulls you in to his kingdom. Yes, you are held captive by Christ, but that's where you want to be. You want to be held captive by Christ because he is a good slave master who gives good gifts to his children and who cares for you and who blesses you and who desires you to walk in holiness and in happiness that you might have wonderful things, not to be used selfishly, but to be a reflection of God's bountiful blessings in your life 
when I say things, I don't mean material things. I'm just talking about having a purpose and having a reason to live and having good relationships and a peaceful conscience and having the ability to walk in the spirit, which is true life, not walking according to, the, the, to, to a dead person. So the question may be for you is, has he captivated your heart today? Has Jesus captivated your heart where you long for him? And that when you see that opportunity to sin, that you choose Christ because you long to be with him and you know that your heart belongs to him. Or are you a slave to sin? We know Paul goes on in Romans 7 to discuss just that. Sometimes the things we don't want to do, we do. And the things we want to do, we don't do. It's an ongoing fight. But are you fighting every day? God, I'm yours. I belong to you. Captivate my heart. Pull me into your captivity, God. Well, the third thing I want us to look about in this manner of Christ's victory is this. Christ gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. Now, we see here again, we're going to have to go back to Psalm 68 because there's a little bit of a back and forth here about what's going on. Okay, so back to those same two verses, Psalm 68, 17 and 18. Remember this, that the passage uh, here in Psalm 68 Uh, It talks about how men, uh, Jesus gives gifts to men. That's what Ephesians 4 says. But the Psalm 68 passage says that men gave gifts to God. So which one is it? Did man give gifts to God or does Christ give gifts to man? Well, before I answer the question, let me just say there are two major changes between Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4. One of them we've already discussed, and that's simply this. Psalm 68 is referring to God, and it uses the second person, It says, you, David says, referring to God the Father, you ascended, you led a host of captives, you received gifts, and this you refers to God the Father. While in Ephesians 4, that you is changed from a second person, you, to a third person, he, and it then refers to Jesus Christ. He ascended, he led a host of captives, he gave gifts to man, and so the he refers to God the Son. For this reason... As we've already discussed, David in the psalm was referring to the Father. Paul in Ephesians is referring to the Son. That's the first major change. The second major change is the verb changes from receiving to giving. So in the same way, David, as referring to the Father, says that he received gifts from men. Paul, referring to God the Son, says, no, he gave gifts to men. I think the best way to understand this is what Harold Holner wrote in his well-known commentary. He says this, quote, it is better to think that Paul was not quoting one particular verse of the psalm, but rather quoting uh, what he was summarizing in the whole of Psalm 68, which has many words similar to those in Psalm 68:18. The essence of the psalm is that a military victor has the right to give gifts to those who are identified with him. Christ, having captivated sinful people by redeeming them, is victor and gives them as gifts to the church. In other words, he's saying, hey, God received gifts. God gave gifts to Christ. Christ gives gifts in return to the church to be used to edify and build up by using our spiritual gifts. And so it's just emphasizing, if you will, one's emphasizing the father, one's emphasizing the son. Or listen to what Peter O'Brien has written on this passage in his pillar commentary. Very interesting. He says this, Paul may be deliberately presenting Christ as greater than Moses. He ascended far above all heavens in order to fill all things. His gift is not the Torah, but grace. While his special gifts of ministry are for building up the whole body, not heavenly secrets for an elite few. 
the liturgical custom in synagogues associated with Psalm 68 with Pentecost, which was increasingly regarded by Jews as the feast which commemorated the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is suggested that Pentecost lies in the background to the apostles' handling of the psalm here in reference to the Christian Pentecost then makes a remarkable analogy. As Moses received the law and gave it to Israel, so Christ received the Spirit and gave him to his people in order to write God's law in their hearts and through the pastors he appointed to teach them the truth. And so the idea of giving and receiving belong together as appropriately illustrated in Acts 2.33 where it says that Jesus received gifts from the Father and then poured these out through the Holy Spirit. So Christ has triumphed, Satan has been defeated, and Christ has determined to give gifts to his church just as he determined. And so in Ephesians 4.11, we'll get to that. Remember, the whole context here is walking in unity, and he's getting into spiritual gifts. And we'll look at how he gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Maybe the question we should be asking, now that we've kind of looked at this a little bit, is just simply this. Are you using your gift? He's given gifts to men according to his measure. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Are you employing your spiritual gift on a daily basis? Are you walking in the spirit or are you walking in the flesh? So next time we're together, we'll begin to examine and tackle this whole idea of spiritual gifts, what they are and how do we use them. But before we can get more into spiritual gifts, which is verse 11, notice there's a parenthesis in 9 through 10 where he begins to exegete even further Psalm 68. And this leads us to our third heading this morning, the meaning of Christ's ascension, verses 9 and 10. First, we can just say this real simple. Christ descended before he ascended. Christ descended before he ascended. And so now what Paul is doing is say, hey, let me talk for just another minute, Paul is saying, in verses 9 and 10 about this Psalm 68 thing. I've already talked to you a little bit about setting captives and making them captive and giving gifts. But now he wants to talk a little bit more about this ascension, this descension thing. And so what happens in these two verses uh, is in verses 9 and 10 is that Paul gives us his own inspired commentary on Psalm 68. Paul is simply saying that if Christ ascended, then he had to descend. In order for him to go up, he had to at some point come down. And so the question is this, he descended to where? Where exactly is it that he descended? Into the earth, into the lower parts of the earth. The NASB reads that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. What does that mean? Well, there's lots of possibilities here. Let me just give you three. Three possible choices of what it means to have descended. This, this isn't in the notes, so you might just want to think about it, but it's kind of clear or simple. Here's the first option is that descended means that he descended to the earth. Like the incarnation, like the fact that God became a man and dwelt upon us. This would have been a genitive of apposition. The idea that he, he descended to earth, to earth, the lower parts, referring to the same thing. He just came to earth. That would be the first idea. The second idea is that, yeah, he came to earth, but he went to the lower regions. So this would have been the idea that he went into the grave. So he actually went into the ground. Even though it was a tomb on the side of a, of a mountain, if you will, he's still kind of in the ground. And so the first view is he just came to earth, incarnation, genitive of apposition. The second view is the idea that he came, came, came into the grave. And this would be a genitive of possession, that the earth possesses this grave and Christ's body was there. 
The third view is that he descended even lower than that. So he came to earth, came into the grave, and he even descended down into hell or into Hades where, uh, where he spent some time between his death and his resurrection. So what's the answer? Well, that's for you to decide. But I'll give you a few more thoughts about it, all right? So I, I think in some ways we already understand that he came to earth. That that's a fact. We also understand that he came to the grave. So that's a fact. The real question is, is there anything more than that? Did he descend into Hades or not? Because if he did, that sounds starting to sound kind of weird. You got to understand that the church has struggled with this passage over the, the history of the, the New Testament church. In fact, the Roman Catholics would say that he descended into hell and made that part of their catechism. And they would even say that Jesus went into hell to rescue good people who were there. And this is consistent with the view that maybe they were in Abraham's bosom and somehow they were held captive and he came to bring them out of there. Maybe even Old Testament saints and he came to bring them out. It's also consistent with their view of purgatory, that somehow while they're in Hades, it could have been a neutral holding place or in Hades could have been kind of like the bad, hotter place. And then here's more the neutral place, but somehow he's pulling them out. But if they're in the bad, hotter place, that's purgatory. They're being purified in order to be able to step up one notch and get into the real heaven. Well, that would kind of be the Catholic view. The problem is, is that even Reformed churches use this in the Apostles' Creed, which says that he descended into hell. And so if it's used in a Reformed church, Protestant church, that he went into hell, well, what do those churches mean when they say the, the Apostolic Creed, that he descended into hell? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, okay? What it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean when the apostolic creed includes the same phrase, Jesus descended into hell, it doesn't mean that people get a second chance. Some people would say, well, it means that he went down in there to pull them out so they got a second chance. In fact, that's what Mormons even teach. Mormons teach that after you die, then you could be witnessed to again and plucked out to move up to their different levels of heaven. It, it, it's, it's, it's heresy. I mean, it's, the Bible teaches that it is appointed unto man once to die, Hebrews 9, 27, and after that, the judgment. You got one shot in this world while you're living. You don't get a second chance. And so if Jesus went to proclaim something in hell, it wasn't so that people could get a second chance. It wasn't that Jesus would have gone into hell to suffer. He wouldn't have gone into hell to suffer anymore, for on the cross, he said, it is finished. It was paid in full on the cross. So if he did go into hell, he didn't go into hell to suffer by, by any means at all. And so why would anybody say that he went into hell? Well, there's a couple of other passages that talk about it. So we got to go there so that you can get a little better rounded view. And then you can decide what you think is best. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about this same idea to some degree. and may shine a little light on the possibility of if Jesus did descend into the lower regions of the earth, meaning Hades, what he did there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now look at that last phrase. Jesus was put to death in the flesh. That's on the cross. He was made alive in the Spirit. He was raised three days later. So some would say, well, what did he do between this time? We know he went to heaven because he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. So we know he went to heaven, but did he go anywhere else during that time? Verse 19 says, again, into verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he, so in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Well, great, Adam, you've confused me even more. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm saying this. The question in this first Peter passage is, where did Jesus go to what prison and who were the spirits that he went to proclaim something to? That's the question. Where did he go and who were the spirits? So are there any, identif- any possibilities in the first Peter text that tells us that? Well, chapter 3, the, the verse 20 does. It says, in the days of Noah. So is it possible that something was going on during the days of Noah that made certain spirits be put in a prison to which Christ would go and proclaim something to them? So with that in mind, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. All right, Genesis chapter 6. The question again we're asking is, who are the spirits and where is this prison? Genesis chapter 6, this is about the flood. Very interesting. So hang in there with me and I guarantee it'll be worth your while. Okay, Genesis chapter 6 Starting in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, the sons of God in verse 2, that could be a reference to angels, fallen angels, even demons, saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Well, uh uh-oh, that's not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to have sons of God if that is a reference to angels, fallen angels, taking women like humans. And and going to them, verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. It's interesting, in verse 3, God says, Wait a second, this can't happen. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I have even made them. So here's what, here's some speculation. All right. You're like, he's speculating. Let me speculate just for a minute, okay? Is it possible, this is the question we're asking, that these sons of God went into these women to create a race that was unredeemable? Is it possible that they're trying to create, because angels cannot be redeemed. Only man can be redeemed. And so some would say it's possible that this new race was beginning half angel, half man, which couldn't be redeemed. Therefore, they're thwarting God's plan to redeem humanity. You say, oh, Adam, that's a bunch of hogwash. Well, turn with me to 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Two more texts, and we're done. Then you can figure this out on your own. You can talk to Dr. Barrick. He'll be back in town. We have John Fenton right here, really smart guy. Daryl Burling's in the back. These guys can all solve this for you. All right, 2 Peter chapter 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Well, what's going on there? Seems like there's some angels that had sinned at some point and they were cast into some kind of hell. They were placed into chains. Look at verse 5. Same text, 2 Peter 2, 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Could it be it was in the time of... 
of uh, Noah and the ungodly when these particular demons were cast into a particular prison where they had chains on them until the time of judgment. Turn to the book of Jude, right next to Second Peter. Jude in verse 6 basically says the same thing. Jude in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, NASB says, within their own domain. So this is where the thought comes, well, they got outside of their own their own into another, to man. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So again, I, I'm not sure, but it seems like there may be something to this idea that if Jesus did go into hell, he went into Caruso to proclaim not the gospel to unbelievers to get saved, but rather a proclamation of victory to those who were in prison of the fact that he had triumphed. And so he spent some time, maybe, between his death and his resurrection in the spirit, proclaiming to those spirits that had tried to thwart the plan of redemption and keep Christ from going to the cross. Now, whether that's all legitimate or not, is isn't crystal clear, right? But what is legitimate is this. Jesus descended to earth. That's all you really need to know. He did come to earth and he did die on a cross and he was raised from the dead and he went back to heaven so he could give you spiritual gifts. That's what we know. Whether that kind of stuff happened over here, it's like, well, that's just kind of fun to think through and to think about it. But we know that he died that he was buried, that he was raised again, and that he ascended. So back to our Ephesians 4 text, and we're done. He descended. He also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. That's your last blank there, that he might fill all things. And so Jesus does fill all things in the sense that he is the source of all blessing, the sum of all virtues, and the supreme sovereign over all. As one commentator wrote, there is not a place between the depth of the cross and the height of the glory which he has not occupied. We know that Colossians teaches us that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so we understand here that what this text is about is about the fact that Jesus gave gifts to his church according to his measure that you would use these gifts because you used to be captive to the world, but now you're captive to him, and he did it because he descended and he ascended. And this is now seen in some of these take-home principles that I want you to think about this afternoon. Number one, understand that unity is not about uniformity, but a united diversity. We talked a good bit about that, but we've got to understand that as a marriage, as a family, as a church, that we're not all the same. We have different gifts, different abilities, so we don't need to be the same. We need to be united. Our diversity is united in Christ. And what that looks like is we serve here in ministries of our church. And as you participate with the worship band or our men's ministry or our women's ministry or the nursery or child care, you'll be tempted to say, I wouldn't do it that way. Well, so what? If so-and-so wants to do it that way, maybe say, you know what? There's, there's nine ways to skin a cat. I don't know how many, many ways, nine lives, right? Nine lives of a cat. There's many ways to skin a cat. The idea of like, hey, we're just going to be united. Our, our main goal here is that we love each other. No matter what else happens, we want to be united in Christ. Secondly, we need to rejoice in the fact that you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ. We can't get over 
the fact that we were enslaved to our sin and you couldn't get out of it and Jesus set you free and now you can't help but to love Christ and to follow Christ and to live to, for Christ because he took you captive. You were, you were in captivity to your sin and he brought you back into his holy kingdom. Third, be thankful for the gifts God has given you and get busy using them. Right? If God went to this great length to accomplish not only our salvation, but to set up our sanctification through utilizing spiritual gifts, just as he measured to give to us, are we using them? Are we thinking about them? Are we employing them in God's strength and for his glory? And so the passage to me is a reminder of how, how many kings would do what Christ did for you. How many kings would give up their throne? How many kings would give up their own son. Yet this is what God did in the person of Christ. And I hope that you will forever be thankful for the measure of Christ's gift. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this text. Thank you for the opportunity to be sobered by the gift of Christ to each one of us who are in him. I pray, God, that you would just bring clarity, maybe to where I brought any confusion today. But Lord, help us to know and understand the main thing of Christ descending and ascending and giving gifts to his church. That we would walk in love and walk in unity. That we would be thankful. That we would be changed. That we would seek to be unified. And that we would be busy doing the work that you've called us to by abiding in Christ. And as Christ abides in us, that we would walk in the spirit. And that people would know this church because of our love for you and for each other. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.